Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian. This podcast is part of a series that was recorded at BookFest Windsor 2019. This episode features a live recording of a spotlight presentation of author Lindsay Wong's best-selling, award-winning memoir titled The Woo Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family. In this presentation, Lindsay Wong is in a wide-ranging conversation about writing with another BookFest Windsor alumni and a former classmate, Casey Platt. Hello everyone, ladies, gentlemen, focusing on the binary. Welcome here. I am Casey Platt and it is my enormous pleasure to be here tonight with Lindsay Wong, author of The Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family. Lindsay is, we actually have known each other for like seven, eight years ago to graduate school together, and we have actually just met again for the first time, which is really nice. It is um, it is so nice to be here with you again tonight. Um, but before uh, I start yapping anymore, um, do you want to read a little bit of your book? I'd love to. My mother's delusions started early one morning. It all began as she fumbled for baby formula in the pantry at my brother's feeding time. She later told me the next morning that there had been a hot, staticky voice in her head that seemed to possess her. Look over here, the voice had demanded, and my mother's eyeballs and neck were plotically swiveled to the doorway, as if by pure synaptic sorcery. You're okay, the voice reassured her. You're going to be absolutely a-okay. Lindsay, it was an alien or a ghost, she wailed, grabbing my shoulders. It took possession of my brain and body. Too young to understand. I shrugged her off and walked away. But I wanted to know why we weren't happy or even nice to one another, like the Flintstones or the Jetsons on Saturday morning television. This was the first hallucinatory vision that made her insist she'd play host to the woo-woo. They came here right into the kitchen and hugged me, she continued, clutching her belly, following me to the kitchen, where I was searching for leftover Halloween candy for breakfast. Oh my god, then the ghost or alien put fire in my body and gave me magical powers, so everyone in my body had to listen to me from now on. Okay, I said, wanting to show her that I heard her. But does that mean I can have more chocolate? Unfortunately, in a large Chinese family, mental health was not a strong suit. I had a grandmother who'd been diagnosed with serious paranoid schizophrenia, who everyone said was mentally weak, or suffered from embarrassing extrasensory perception, aka fucked up ESP. <laughs> Too many of us were inclined to nervous breakdowns, mainly in exciting psychotic installments. And many years later, when I was 20 years old, on Canada Day 2008, my auntie, beautiful one, the youngest of my mom's five sisters, would take the city of Vancouver hostage, trapping more than 2,100 people as she threatened to leap off the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. 
Lindsay, you have written a book that is extraordinarily well written and hilarious and extraordinarily sad and heartbreaking and one of the most amazing, amazing accomplishments on a prose level. This is one of the best memoirs that I have ever read. Thank you. That means a lot. I mean, little fish, right? Come on. That's right. Thank you. Um, and that's, that's not a question, by the way. I just wanted to say that to you publicly. So everyone, you should buy this book afterwards. Um, I, so my first actual question, however, I'm always interested in like when writers know that they're done, you know? Um, especially having written a couple books myself, and sort of when you know that like, okay, this, I like cannot keep baking this very overbaked thing. And I know that it took you a long time to write this, right? I mean, it sounds about how many years? Oh God, I started it at Columbia, we're actually classmates, and then after- Two started. So after two years, I kind of had this rough draft of a book. I spent another couple of years writing it. I actually spent more time getting rejected than actually, you know, writing it. I think I think thirteen publishers, and everyone thirteen, yeah. And everyone's like, "This is too dark, too weird, too niche." And they're saying, "Like, no one's gonna read it," you know. Um, Tiger Mom works because it's about how to parent, right? Or is this, you know? This is about a, one Chinese family, but I'm like, it's a universal memoir about mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it was just like keeping, you know, sending it out. And finally, Arsenal Pulp Press, they really liked it. And, you know, they offered, and that was a great moment. Yeah. And about how many years, can I ask you, like how many years from when you first started sending it out to win Arsenal took it? Oh, God. Um, I would say I started sending it out. I finished the memoir in 2012. I had an agent. I actually had two agents. Um, they kind of just kept the memoir on a on the desk and they never sent it out. I found another agent. Um, this was in 2015, my third agent. She couldn't sell it and I ended up, I think almost, how many years? From like 2012 to 2019? Seven years? Seven years. Yeah, yeah. seven years of rejections. Aspiring writers, seven years. Um, I find it kind of interesting too. I was thinking because I, I know I know I read an interview where you were talking about how um, it was rejected for those reasons, yeah. and I thought I so both of us had posted about National Folk Press the same year, and I also got rejected by a bunch of major publishers who couldn't like who couldn't crop the book, um, and then yet both of us came out with the same press in 2018. Um, how did you like? I mean, I don't know. I know what that was like for me. Like, what did that in all those years? Like, did that get you down at all, or did that like get you frustrated, or like how? I mean, I'm sure it did both those things, but. You know, can you talk about what it was like getting through that? Oh god, I'm I'm pretty um, relentless. I don't know if you know if you've read my memoir or if you've heard me talking. I am someone who doesn't give up. I'm I just kept sending it. You know, I I yeah I was down. But you know, you have your pot, you have your marshmallows, you have your friends, and for me it was just I just knew the book had to be out there. Yeah. yeah. Um. So was there a point when you were, when you were writing it, was there a point that you like knew, that you knew that you were finished? Like was there a point where you're like, okay, like I'm, I'm gonna have to start sending this out now, like I can't look at this thing anymore, or like I've done all I can need to do. Was there a point when you sort of knew that had happened? I think I wanted to stop when I got so sick of looking at my own words. I think every writer gets to that point and they're just like, no more, like I will like, you know, stab out my eyeballs if I have to, you know, yeah. keep looking at it, right? And then we're just like, okay, I'm just gonna send it out, you know, I hope it's ready, and you have to take that fine, you know, leap of faith. And for me, it was a bit difficult because I didn't know where to end the book because I'm, I'm obviously still alive. 
and I was like, you know, um, we need to we need a point there to stop it. And I remember talking to um, Richard Locke at Columbia, he was a professor there, and he said, you know, everyone's ending their memoirs in grad school these days, you know? Why don't we do that? And I'm like, okay, sure, right? And so I ended up bookending my memoir in grad school based on his suggestion. Right, which is really funny because I don't know if you get anymore in ending. Uh, but I, I, I thought it was like, I won't spoil it, but like it, was, it's like it was a super like the image that you left on, I thought was really lovely. Like that was stuck in my head for the last few days. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, you're, I'm going to try not to spoil it, but this doesn't take any at grad school, although you are going back at that point. But. Yeah, I mean, grad school, yeah. I mean, I was just telling you, it took me three times. Right, great right, right. All problems, you know. The usual. Columbia was really hard. I wasn't a great student. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, for. Uh, I agree. Yeah, you did your reading. I remember you had the book list and everything, right? So what? You had the book list. You were actually doing the reading. I pretended to do the reading. Oh, you see, yeah, I didn't buy the books. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, you're smart. You save money. I know, right? Because they're so expensive. So I would just like, you know, pretend I went to class and then spend the time writing. So yeah, I didn't read. Also, okay, tips for aspiring writers, how to do graduate school. You've heard it right here. Yeah, don't go to class, it just wastes time. <laughs> um, Speaking of which, I, I'm sure you asked this a lot, but I must ask you, what is it like being on Canada Reads? Oh god, uh, when I tell people it was surreal, I mean it that it was, it scared the shit out of me. Like, um, I was like, what do you mean? What is Canada Reads, right? And um, we can actually find out um, we are on the short list. Um, I think well, we found out we were on a long list before the long list came up. But um, one of uh, the judges, um, he couldn't decide, so I didn't know. So we, they were like, just keep this weekend open. You might have to go to Toronto. But he, he, can't, he can't decide. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, what is Canada? He's like, I obviously don't know what's going on in the world. So I had to Google it when the producer called. And she's like, so you have heard of us, right? And I'm like on Wikipedia. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. So you guys are part of this VC. I've been this. I know, I've been writing, so I've not been in the world. And so, so I had to pretend I knew exactly what they were talking about. Another tip for aspiring writers, don't listen to this. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm horrible. Um, don't, don't imitate me. Um, so yeah, so we, we flew to Toronto, and they have you uh, on set. So like, a lot of people don't know about Canada Reads. It's almost like a reality TV show where they make you see your lines over and over again. And for me, like, I, in front of the camera, like, I look like this, and like, I just can't, you know, make those faces. So they're like, Lindsay, see, this line, more emotion, but watch your face, because your face is doing, like, like this, right? And I was like, okay, okay. So we filmed, I think, two days of filming. Um, they couldn't use any of the footage. Went back to Vancouver, and they made me do it again. And it was still pretty bad. But it was okay because I got voted off the first episode. So mm. that was that was good. It feels like no one had to see any of my like my horrible like facial expressions. That is so wild. Yeah, the Josie was amazing. Um, he was on the good side, but he saw this sign in LA. Like he was like driving, and he saw like House of Woo, right? And he was like, okay, that means it's a sign that I have to pick the book. Oh. So yeah, that was, that was kind of cool. If you are a writer, you probably don't like attention. I mean, you know, recognition from peers is always lovely, but most writers are introverted, so like all of us like, on, on Canada Reads were just like, 
oh my god, the camera's on us, what do we say? We have to look smart, we have to look smart, right? Was everyone else like that too? Yeah, I think, I mean, David Shirandi is pretty calm, but he was in like a, uh, I think he was on a, like a snowstorm that day, and he arrived really late, he's like, what if I don't look smart on camera? And I was like, no, 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 you're great, you're great. I mean, he's like the smartest person I know, right? Um, so everyone has those doubts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for lots of the book, we're seeing you're telling us things as you now, but you're also telling us things, you're sort of walking and talking also as being six or 13 or 15. Um, and it was so, there were so many points where I thought it was very like immersive and wise, where it was very seamless, and it didn't, I didn't kind of really see any sort of like clunkiness or any sort of, um, sort of, oh, now we're hearing author Lindsay, and now we're hearing character Lindsay. If you don't mind, I'm going to be old enough to read passages of the voices. It's on page 98, um, where Kevin with your cousin Flowery Face. On the beach, Flowery Face looked like she wanted to punch me, so I made a note to buy her some candy when I had the chance. She was a skinny kid, but she was the product of Uncle E.T., and I did not want to fight her, even though there was a good chance that I could bring because I was older and 60 pounds heavier. In our floral bathing suits competing for the attentions of beautiful women, she suddenly whacked me in the shoulder when no one was looking, and I viciously kicked her back. Get your own mom, she said. Mine's currently broken, and I said, wondering if it was too late to bribe her with candy. Too bad, flowery face snapped. Oh, I can't read the next line, so it's too mean. I'm gonna pass, okay, I'm going to pass over to the next one. We'll talk about it above. I sighed because I was used to fights and game calling like this with either my sister or my mother. Flowery face and I would not be remotely sympathetic to one another until we got older, and back then, I viewed her as an extension of my sister, someone much younger than me, and inconvenience. Someone who needed her face and eyes and gums rubbed in hot sand. But clenching my teeth, I resisted the urge to knock her down. Because flowery face was of someone I had to be beat and be better at in every way, it was not worth my effort because I'd already want my aunt's attention. I thought there's so, and you do this throughout the entire book, where we can hear you on all those registers. Um, and I just thought it was a really amazing accomplishment. Can you speak to that at all? Is that, is that intentional? Like, can you talk to how you wrote that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew that I wanted to merge the adult and the child narrator because I think that's what memoir is, right? And um, you just can't, if you keep it in the child's perspective, it becomes more like a YA book, right? It's a children's book. Whereas I think with memoir, um, I think the problem is sometimes if you add the adult voice in, it kind of makes it clunky. Yeah, exactly. So I think like, you know, for me when I was writing it, I was like, okay, the child is doing something, but the adult Lindsay is speaking about it. And it's just a matter of, you know, moving back and forth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I feel like I've read so many memoirs where you can kind of tell when the adult voice sort of crashes into the room and they crash back out, you know? It's or, handed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I feel like I've read a lot of books that are the opposite, too, so. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do you have any advice? <laughs> any advice? Um, I think what really helped was sort of writing um, from the child's perspective. So any, are there any aspiring writers in the room? Or writing memoirs, just one, two. Okay. Yeah. So it, it really helps just, you know, imagining your child and writing that scene from the child's point of view and then doing it again as an adult and then seeing if you cross over. So that's a great exercise. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to read another piece about my mom. Um, yeah, my mom is like a big figure in this book, right? Like, I don't know if mom's right. My mother had survived verbal poverty, 
in what had once been the rural outskirts of Hong Kong. Her grandfather's prosperous Russian family had sold her schizophrenic daughter, my grandmother, to a poor man for just a hundred bucks before jumping ship to Vancouver. Not only had my grandmother been cut off from the family fortune, but she had basically been abandoned in a backwater village to run around barefoot and be infamously crazy. So my mother and her siblings had grown up with nothing to eat but all the cigarettes they cared to smoke. Gung Gung, my grandfather, doled out economy packs like candy because he got them for free with his gambling, win or lose. I imagined my mother and my aunties and uncles as toddlers squatting in ankle-deep mud, chubby black flies, shooting the thick grease off their skulls, smoking cigarettes, having a blast. Because as soon as you turn two years old, Gung Gung proudly handed you her very own pack to help with the hunger. When they were lucky enough to buy a whole chicken, only the boys could partake in the skimpy meal. And I imagined my mother as a kid, sulkily huffing and puffing on her cigarettes all day long as she watched her brothers gorge on fresh meat. Each of our eight kids had a favorite sibling or someone they felt a little sorry for. My mother looked at my aunt, who was six years younger. She was responsible for plucking lice out of beautiful one's thick, horsey hair. And when the beautiful one was too vain to want an ugly boy's haircut, my mother would slap her into agreement. A sympathetic auntie once told me, lucky you, you got the meanest person in the family for your mommy. Which was true, because my mother was certainly the most demanding sister. In times of famine and hardship, having my mother around meant that you had better chance of survival. At mealtimes, the quickest or the biggest kid got the most rice through speed or physical intimidation. In those simple village days, dinners were violent world wars, so alliances and strategies had to be forged and schemed. If you were not a blessed boy, the chicken thighs were definitely out of the question. But as a little girl, you could always brawl over a measly wizard or a bleeding poultry heart. My mother shared her dinner orders with my aunt, and sometimes she did not eat. This was the compassionate side of my mother that I had never seen, and it seemed that I had slowly leaked out, like battery acid, during her marriage to my father, who had a selfishly polarizing effect on her. It was almost as if she would hide any slivers of kind-heartedness from my father, to avoid being discovered for what she really was, or what she could be. Show a little self-sacrificing compassion, and my father might mock you. Then a nasty ghost would take possession of you. At dinner parties, when the aunties and uncles talked about the old days, they loved to compare the exact size and length of their parasites. Supposedly, these were dangling snakes that they had to pluck out from their assholes. And my mother always bragged about her squiggling cobra being four feet long, whereas beautiful one said hers was a beast at six feet. They could spend hours arguing over whose monster worm was scarier, which one was scarier, whose had a googly eye. And I assume that because they had nothing to focus on back then, except their miserable poverty, this is what they discussed to pass the hours as they happily puffed a pack a day. And the dimension and forms of these mythological serpents 
had been discussed to death, the siblings all complained about their terrible childhood hunger. To reassure themselves that a food shortage did not exist anymore, they ordered in dozens of cardboard pizzas, soggy boxes of saturated fried chicken, and entire menus from the greasy spoons for Lunar New Year. The sweet and sour pork eating a vicious, celebratory red, the black fermented fish heads tossed in negative fried rice, everything and anything ordered to make up for not eating when they were children. Of course, all the cousins had lost their appetites by now, and we stared at the foot-long, slimy rice noodles, the caterpillar-like vermicelli coagulating in sludgy sauce with queasy, unspeakable horror. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.